Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Emmanuel Truro podcast. I am Pastor Michael Fredericks here with another episode for you. Uh, this is a podcast where, um, well, for one thing, you get the sermons every week from our church. Um, and also, every now and then, uh, I'll come on here, sometimes by myself, sometimes with a guest, to discuss some big question, some difficult uh, issue, some theological matter of interest for all of us Bible nerds out there, and uh, we'll try to get we'll try to get good answers from the Bible on these difficult questions. Sometimes the topics will emerge from a sermon, and that's the case today. As you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, we are recently or currently uh, wrapping up a sermon series on the things that lie ahead, on eschatology, on the end times, on the return of Jesus, uh, what heaven will be like, and so on. One of the things that we didn't spend a great deal of time talking about is the nature of hell. We talked a little bit about hell, Gehenna in the Greek, uh, uh, Gehinnom in the Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, which is this language that's used in the New Testament to refer to the ultimate fate of the wicked. This place, this experience that will be terrible, um, that will be the the location, uh, the experience of those after the judgment of Jesus uh, when he returns who don't know Jesus as Savior. That will be their final destination. But what is the nature of hell? Well, most of you would probably have images in your mind um, of fire, or if not fire, at least some sort of darkness or dungeon kind of environment, uh, separate from God, where people are conscious for eternity, uh, suffering without end. This is sort of how the view of hell has developed over the history of the church. Um, there was, I remember there was a play that used to be a big thing, and I went and saw it one time when I was a teenager. I was invited to a neighboring church to go check it out as a youth group, I think. The play was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Some of you maybe have seen that. And in this play, it's uh, it's basically depicting what happens to someone who dies and doesn't know Jesus. And, and in this play, they experience the literal fire of hell, and it's terrible, and it's, uh, it's meant to scare you into believing in Jesus. Well, where do these views come from? Surely they come from the Bible, don't they? Well, you know, I think we have to be careful. I think that the Bible isn't exactly crystal clear on what the nature of hell will be. And I think that we've allowed culture and tradition and art and history and writing of the past to inform that view of hell. And I'm not so sure, I'm not, I'm not fully convinced but that's really what the Bible has to say. So, I would say that over the history of the church, there's been three main views on the nature of hell that have developed. There's probably more than three, but these are the three sort of main streams that people tend to believe. So, what are the three main views on hell, on the nature of hell. Let's explore each one. The first would be the traditional view, eternal conscious torment. This is what I've been describing. This is what you probably 
I suspect, and maybe it's not a safe assumption, but I'm assuming maybe in your imagination, this torment that is never-ending, everlasting, and is conscious. So that's eternal conscious torment, also sometimes called traditionalism. Another view is called universalism. The view of universalism is that everyone lives forever, just the same as traditionalism, everyone lives forever, but unlike the traditional view that says the unsaved are suffering everlasting conscious torment, universalism says the unsaved are refined and ultimately saved. That's universalism. In the end, everyone is saved. And then the third view is called, well, it goes by different names. Sometimes it's called annihilationism. Sometimes it's called conditionalism or conditional immortality. Or more recently, I've heard it called terminal punishment. So this view is that the saved uh, are raised in immortal glory to live forever, but the unsaved are raised in mortal shame to be finally destroyed. That may include an experience of suffering, but it's temporary, and that in the end, those who are cast into hell are ultimately destroyed. So those are the three main views. The traditional eternal conscious torment view, universalism, everyone gets saved, or annihilationism, conditionalism slash terminal punishment, that in the end, everyone is who doesn't belong to Jesus is destroyed. Okay, so let's unpack each of those three views real quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this today. This is a short podcast, but I just really just want to sort of introduce these concepts to you. I'm not going to make a strong argument in one direction or another. I do have my own view, um, which probably will be clear <laughs> by the end of this podcast. But really, I just want to sort of introduce you to some of these ideas um, because I think that, I, certainly for me, I, I grew up thinking there is only one view. There's only one way to think about it biblically. Uh, and if you don't hold that view, then you're you're being um, you're not being biblical. You're not being a good Christian, and um, I don't think that's fair. I don't really don't think that's fair at all. So let's unpack each of these three views. First, eternal conscious torment, tr- or traditionalism. It's called traditionalism because it's been the strongest tradition of the church uh, since Saint Augustine really started promoting it uh, around the year 500 or just before the year 500 A.D. Now, where does this view come from? Well, there's definitely a few verses in the Bible that imply that eternal conscious torment is what hell will be like. Uh, that hell will be an experience of unending conscious suffering and punishing. Um, it all kind of depends on how you interpret a few words and what, and what their meaning is. But I would say that, for me, the single strongest verse is probably from Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we have Jesus, uh, a description of Jesus judging after his return. The sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, verse 46. These, meaning the goats, well, those who don't know Jesus, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, into eternal life. That word 
that's translated eternal in the English is the same in both of those cases. Eternal punishment versus eternal life. So the assumption is if one group is experiencing conscious bliss in heaven that goes on forever and ever, that the parallel idea is that those experiencing eternal punishment would also be having a conscious experience that goes on forever in a sort of parallel way. So that's why I would say that is probably the strongest single scripture in the New Testament that makes me think eternal conscious torment could be a bibli- could be a very could be defended biblically. Um, one of the problems with this view, eternal conscious torment, is that the biblical support for it is, I think, surprisingly limited. The Bible says quite a lot about the judgment and the punishment of those who don't belong to Jesus, but actually not all that much about the nature of the experience of hell for these people. And so Matthew 25, that's a good that's a good verse for eternal conscious torment, but it's one of the only verses I would say that really makes a strong case. Um, so I would say biblical support for eternal conscious torment is there, but not strong. Okay. Now, someone who really firmly believes that view would disagree with me, and they would point to several other passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, hell. Um, But if you don't necessarily hold to eternal conscious torment, there are other ways to read those verses that that could lean towards annihilationism. So, um, aside from Matthew 25, there's not a lot of strong biblical support. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Universalism. Universalism is the view that in the end, everyone will be saved. That the experience of hell, those who go there, will cause them to turn and have faith. The idea would be, of course, if someone goes to hell, they realize that they were wrong and realize that God is God, Jesus is Lord, and they will repent and uh, that God will give them a second chance. Uh, Somewhat sort of like a purgatory kind of view that, uh, you know, you can get out, you can get out of there, you can get out of hell, get out of jail free, you can get out of hell free kind of situation, uh, even after you've already been in there. So that's universalism. Now, the biblical support for this view is, I would say, even more limited than eternal conscious torment. Um, the one verse that could be really used for this is Philippians 2.10 that says in, that, uh, that in the end every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if you think, you know, how will every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord if they're not all in heaven? Well, there... <laughs> There's two ways of looking at that. If you believe in eternal conscious torment, you would say, yeah, they're going to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord, but it doesn't matter, it's too late. Um, the annihilationist would say, yes, in the end, after everyone who doesn't belong to Jesus is annihilated, is destroyed completely, then every existing knee, every existing tongue will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. The other way that universalism can be argued is that it seems to be in keeping with the love and grace of God. And we like the idea that God will give people a second chance in the end. I would obviously prefer this view to be true. Um, just in my human nature, it's uh, it's nice, right? Everyone, in the end, it's okay. Uh, everyone gets saved. But I 
feel that it runs counter to the biblical evidence. Really, there's, there's no hint that the verdict at Christ's judgment will be reversed after people have spent some time in hell. Every text gives the impression that Christ's decision, Christ's judgment in the end, is a final decision, a final judgment, no going back. So, again, I find universalism hard to defend. Okay, what about annihilationism, a.k.a. conditional immortality, a.k.a. terminal punishment? This view is that hell is a limited experience in terms of duration. That in the end, the final result will be annihilation. The metaphor is that of a fire that consumes, a fire that destroys, a fire that eradicates. So that the, when the Bible is talking about fire, whether that's literal fire or not, that fire will do what fire does. It won't burn someone alive forever and ever and ever. It will burn up those who enter into it, and they will be reduced to nothing. Um, the eternal aspect, see this is where people who, who don't agree with annihilationism get hung up. They say, well, hold on. Um, Hell is, if hell, Matthew 25 says heaven is eternal, hell is eternal, how can it be eternal uh, if it doesn't last forever? And the eternal aspect, when it comes to this view of annihilationism, is that it is eternal in effect, not in duration. Eternal in effect, not in duration. Meaning it is a forever final punishment. But it's not corporal punishment. It's not a punishment to a, a, a spiritual prison. It is eternal capital punishment. It is terminal punishment. The eternalness of the punishment is in the sense that the person is ultimately terminated for eternity. Uh, no, There's no end uh, to the fact that they will be gone forever. It is eternal in effect. Uh, so it's eternal punishment, not eternal punishing. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When you start to speculate that this could be what the texts are meaning when you read in the New Testament, that those who go to, go to hell are cast into hell by Jesus um, will be ultimately destroyed, that they will die, that they will be eliminated, eradicated, when you start to be open to that, you start to notice scriptures that you never noticed it in before that it happens, that, that view may be there. For example, the, probably the most famous verse of the whole Bible, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What that says to me is that the opposite of eternal life is not eternal life in hell, it's perishing. That those who, if you don't have eternal life, you will perish. Uh, it doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not live forever in hell or be punished forever in hell. It says they will not perish. It's interesting, right? Just to think about that. Um, 
The view is, as I said earlier, sometimes called conditional immortality or conditionalism. And that's based on the idea that um, eternal life is the gift of God and that those who do not receive this gift will not live forever. Some people say everyone lives forever, it just depends on where, right? It's like real estate, location, location, location. Um, uh, But this view, the view of annihilationism or conditional immortality says, no, you won't, everyone doesn't live forever naturally. The only ones who will live forever are those who have received the gift of eternal life. And those who haven't received the gift of eternal life will literally die a second death. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, hell is called the second death. The lake of fire is called the second death. The terminology of scripture over and over regarding the ultimate fate of the wicked is this terminology of destruction. This is an argument for annihilationism. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it's probably fairly clear. I, I lean in this direction. I, I'm, I'm, pretty sh- I'm pretty sure this is really what the text of the Bible has to say. Um, but, of course, I'm open to other views. But this, let, just let me show you a few of the scriptures. So if we go to the Old Testament and we read some of the scriptures that refer to the ultimate fate of those who die apart from the Lord, we read passages like Psalm 1, verse 6. The way of the wicked ends in destruction. Psalm 69, verse 28, that the wicked will be blotted out of the book of the living. Psalm 37, for the evildoers shall be cut off. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. But the wicked will perish. They will vanish like smoke. They vanish away. But transgressors shall be, uh, sorry, and transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Those are some psalms. How about Obadiah 16, referring to the fate of the wicked, says, They shall be as though they had never been. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The image there is that they will be burned up completely. Uh, There's over 70 passages in the Old Testament that present imagery of destruction for the wicked. That was, you know, it seems fairly clear that that's the Jewish view. That was the Old Testament view. So then when you go to the New Testament, you have to ask, well, did the authors of the New Testament, Jesus, Um, make a change to that perspective? Did they make a shift away from the language of destruction for the ungodly and change it to language of eternal torture? Did Did they change it to language that better fits a view of people being kept alive for eternity in order to suffer a conscious experience of torment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Well, let's look at the New Testament and see if there's been a shift from the Old Testament language of destruction. So we go to the New Testament, and you see in places like Matthew 7, Matthew 10, 1 Corinthians 3, James 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, we see the word destroy or destruction when it comes to references to hell. For example, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, 
Fear the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. The implication there, God is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And after the resurrection of everyone, those who are cast into hell will be cast into hell, uh, both body and soul. In the same way that we will, those who know Jesus, will enter into heaven, body and soul. Um, and it says, Matt, Jesus himself says that God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Destruction. Second Thessalonians, for the Apostle Paul. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not, do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that's referring to the judgment that we've talked about in a previous sermon. Verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 9, they will suffer, what? The punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, someone who believes in eternal conscious torment, the traditional view would say that word destruction doesn't mean elimination. It doesn't mean eradication. It doesn't mean annihilation. It means some other sort of destruction, maybe destruction of personhood. So that's one way to interpret that. That's entirely plausible. Um, but it's just interesting that the terminology is destruction in keeping with the terminology that we saw all through the Old Testament. Destruction, destruction, destruction. Uh, other terminology that's used in the New Testament, the idea of, of being consumed or being burned up as if by fire. We can read about those sorts of terminologies found in Matthew 7, Matthew 13, John 15, Hebrews 6 and Matthew 3. Let's read the Matthew 3, verse 12 uh, reference. But It says, But the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. The fire is inextinguishable. You can't put it out. It's one of those fires that is so fierce and raging that no amount of fire departments that were to come with all their hoses would be able to put it out. It's inextinguishable. And that fire, the implication there is that that fire will do what fire, a, a raging, extremely hot fire would do. It will burn up whatever goes into it. The chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire, Matthew 3.12. We've already talked about the terminology of perishing, John 3.16, for example. I'll also find that in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 to 16. You can also find that in John 10, Jesus says in verse 27 to 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. The implication is that if he didn't give us eternal life, we would perish. Um, and, of course, the terminology of death in reference to uh, the end result of our sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is Death. It doesn't say the wages of sin is eternal conscious suffering. It doesn't say the wages of sin is torture. It says the wages of sin is death. The ultimate consequence is death. And as we have already mentioned as well, at the end of the book of Revelation, that the lake of fire is referred to the second death. In 2 Peter 2.6, it says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 2 Peter 2.6 If you were to go to Israel today, down around the Dead Sea, I've been there, uh, you cannot see the city of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, there. It's gone. It's long gone. 
those, I guess, two cities, twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are not perpetually burning. They are not still on fire. Uh, they were condemned to extinction. They burned to the ground. And Peter says that they, that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Okay, so, clearly what I'm saying is that I think this view, this third view of annihilationism, has merit and shouldn't be dismissed as heretical or unbiblical. As a matter of fact, one of the strongest supporters of this view in the whole world is the professor of religious studies at our very own university, Crandall University in Moncton, Dr. John Stackos. He literally wrote the chapter uh, in support of this view in the book, Three Views or Four Views on Hell. Uh, He is one of the leading voices uh, in the world academically on this. And he's one of our own, belongs to one of our Baptist churches in Moncton. Um, It's also the view of Dr. Danny Zacharias, professor of New Testament at Acadia Divinity College. Um, So even if you're like, Michael, you're off your rocker, uh, this there I do there's no way no chance zero chance that I think that that third view of annihilationism makes any sense at all and here's all the scripture references why I think you're wrong fine that's fine I'm okay with that you can disagree with me we can disagree it's not the end of the world but I would say you can't dismiss it as being um, as being heretical or unbiblical there's there is sufficient biblical evidence to argue the case for the third view, and some very, very, very respectable biblical scholars hold that view, even within our own tribe here of Baptist in Atlantic Canada. So here's a couple closing thoughts. Uh, I'll say the same thing about this that I said about the rapture, when we talked about different views of the rapture, whether or not we believe it's going to happen at all or not happen uh, will it happen before the re- Jesus comes back a second time? or All these different things. Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, or is it just all one big event? Whatever. We, As I said, when you look at that situation, when you consider those difference of views, we need to have a open hand, right? There's some some views that we hold with a closed a closed hand. We say we're not gonna we're not going to uh, debate the virgin birth of Jesus. We're not going to debate the literal bodily resurrection of Christ. We're not going to debate that God created the world. We're not going to debate the Trinity. Those are things that are not up for debate. Okay, those are non-negotiables. Okay, those are the closed-hand things. But there's these open-handed things that where the Bible is not always crystal clear, and they may be important matters, but not a necessary point of division. And this view on on how you understand the nature of hell is one of those open-handed issues. Could it be that the people who are cast into hell will be kept alive forever in in a conscious state of suffering? Yes, that is a a view that can be argued biblically. Uh, Is it possible that those who are cast into hell will have a temporary experience of suffering uh, that will cause them to repent and turn their hearts towards God. And in his grace and love, he will save them all in the end. And in the end, everyone, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because everyone will be in heaven. Is that something that can be argued biblically? Yes, I would say less so than the other views, but 
there can be a case made. Could it be that the nature of hell is such that those who will be cast into hell will experience some degree of suffering for the sin that they committed in this world, but that that suffering will come to an end because it will be ultimately a capital punishment that they're, the, the eternal uh, punishment that they will receive is a terminal punishment. It will be extinction from existence. Can that be uh, argued biblically? Yes, that also could be argued biblically. So all three of these views uh, are, are possible, and, and we shouldn't allow them to divide us. And we can still hold to the, the traditional, uh, or we can hold to the, the great statements of faith, the Apostles' Creed. We can hold to our own church's doctrinal statement uh, and, and say yes to it wholeheartedly as I do, um, and still have differences of opinion on the nature of what that experience of hell will be. So, do not let this divide you. Allow this just to be another one of those really interesting things that we can explore in our interesting Bibles. So, my advice to you is, is if you're curious, if, you, if, you, if this is something that really fascinates you or uh, you want to explore more, uh, do so. Read. There's things you can read about this. There's, um, there's all kinds of stuff online you can read. Read your Bible. Look at the verses. Uh, have, have another look. Study. Think about it. Pray about it. Um, talk to me about it. I'd love to have conversations about these. I'm a Bible nerd. I love having theological discussions about this stuff. Um, so I'm open to it. I'd, I'd love to have those conversations. So yeah, let, let's have some, some grace towards one another. And the bottom line, final thought, bottom line is um, that in the end, all sin, all evil will be removed, removed from God's good world. This is the effect of the judgment. Anything that is not compatible with the kingdom of God is gone. Whether that means that it's removed from this dimension and is in some other dimension, it's still, it's still in existence, but it's removed to some degree, that's possible. Maybe it's uh, removed because it's been all sinners have been refined and they're now with us. Or maybe they, it's removed because everyone who doesn't know Jesus has been eliminated, uh, annihilated. Either way, in the end, we look forward to a heaven and a creation and an existence where all is perfected. And that is a very good thing. And if you don't know Jesus, I can't go without saying it, you need to put your faith in him. The only assurance that you have that you will be on the right side of this situation and in heaven forever with the Lord is that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Turn your heart towards him. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Turn your heart to him. Say yes to Jesus. Okay, I hope that was helpful to you. I hope maybe you learned something. I'm sorry I was kind of rambling. If, and if I didn't make any sense, I can help you. I can help clarify anything that I may have said. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Michael Fredericks. This is the Emanuel Truro Podcast. God bless.